One of the things that you should love about the Bible is its stark refusal to cover over the failings of its heroes. Later history, and including Christian history, has tried so often to present uh, the key characters in such a way that they appear somehow like better or, or less human. And this comes to mind as we reflect during this Age of Rage series on the need, as James 1.19 encourages, to slow down our anger and accept that it doesn't fix things. Yet, with this in mind, I want to give you another quote. The quote is this, I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. This harsh and violent pronouncement would probably not be overly surprising to hear in many contexts today. You can probably imagine at least one thing going on in your country or in another country uh, that is boiling the blood of someone, maybe even you yourself. The, the lists have been similar throughout history. Generally, someone has done something and someone in charge, like the king or the president or the prime minister or someone like that, they've done something and, and that decision directly impacts you. And you then start to hear this language of, like, I'm just so angry, I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. What's interesting is that this quote isn't taken from someone angry at one of the many anger-inducing moments of 2020. No, actually, this quote comes straight out of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and not just some random extra character sort of passing by in some scene, but it's actually the words of a prophet, a prophet who has a, a whole book of the Bible dedicated to him. Now, what's potentially even more fascinating is that what he's angry about or rather what he's angry at, is God. You see, the quote, I'm so angry I wish I was dead, is actually the final recorded statement of the biblical prophet Jonah. It's not his last words. It's just the last words that anybody bothered to write down. And there's probably some irony that a quote like this would be his last known words. As I said, the Bible doesn't try and cover up for its heroes. But these are the last words that we know about Jonah, which may surprise you, because if you do know Jonah, you probably know him from his more famous work, Jonah and the Whale. So how do you get from Jonah and the Whale to, I'm so angry, I wish I was dead? Which is another way of asking, where is your anger coming from? And that's the question I want to ask while we talk about this guy called Jonah. The story of Jonah, it begins with these words in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. The text says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, the normal pattern in a biblical story, and go and read, for example, the story of Abraham to see this, the normal pattern is that God says go, and the next line is, the person went. So you'll love the next line in Jonah's story, because the story reads like this, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. 
Now, this is the bit of the story that you're probably familiar with. So Jonah runs away from where he is, and he gets in a boat to head towards Tarshish. While he's on the boat, a storm uh, it rises up in the process of this boat, and Jonah basically convinces the, 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 the other sailors that are with him that he's the reason that this storm has, has risen up, and he convinces them to throw him overboard, which they reluctantly do. Uh, they, they're kind of convinced that God must be angry at something, so they, they ditch him into the sea, at which point a large fish is provided by God, and it eats Jonah. And then Jonah seems to have this, what we perhaps these days call a come-to-Jesus moment, that Jonah has this moment in the belly of this fish where he realizes that he probably shouldn't have run away from God, at which point the fish then sort of pukes him up, and Jonah decides he's to head on towards Nineveh. And that's basically chapter one and two of the entire book. And the book's only four chapters long. So the first part of this story, this kind of Jonah and the whale story, has captured the minds of kids' pastors and Sunday schools the world over. In fact, I don't think there's a kids' story Bible that's missed the story ever. And to be fair, the story does kind of capture the imagination. Like, even the author of Pinocchio borrows the scene of Jonah's time in the fish as the turning point of that story about the small puppet. There's a kind of sort of simple pattern to the story. You know, disobeying God seems to get you in trouble, whereas praying and doing what he asks gets you out of trouble. And as nice as that story is, that's not what the book of Jonah is about. So what is going on here? Like, why does Jonah run away? And what motivates someone to hear from God and do, well, completely the opposite? I think there's a few options. The first thing that we need to note is about Nineveh, this city that God wanted Jonah to go to. So Nineveh, and in some context you maybe have heard it pronounced as Nineveh, but its proper pronunciation is Nineveh. Nineveh was at the time the biggest city in the known world. Like even Jonah tells us it was a three-day hike to go from one side of it to the other. It was an Assyrian city. And the Assyrians were the superpower of their day, like barbaric, ruthless, and unbelievably powerful. And they were crushing nations in their vicinity on a pretty relentless basis. And guess who one of those nations was? Yeah, Israel, Jonah's people. The Assyrians were essentially the Nazis of their time. So Jonah wouldn't have been too excited to go near to this war machine. He'd seen up close what they did to his country, the extreme effect of being conquered by a more powerful neighbor. And God was asking him to go and tell them they were wicked? Like, just try and get on side with Jonah for a moment and imagine how he hears this. Imagine being asked to wander into Berlin in 1942 and tell the Nazis that God thinks they're bad. But it's even more complex than this. Because Jonah doesn't simply dislike the Ninevites. It's actually a little worse than that. You see, if you were reading or hearing this story when it was first written, then you would have already heard of Jonah. Because Jonah appears in another biblical book, the book of 2 Kings. And when we meet Jonah in 2 Kings, what do you think he's doing? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we find Jonah as the driving visionary for the construction of a wall that will divide Israel from the Assyrians. 
Jonah and his people have lost too many friends and family in the brutality uh, of the Assyrians. And so his views on them are likely constricted to fear, hate, disgust, and rage. And God comes to Jonah and says, I'd like you to go over that wall that you've just built and preach to those people. I mean, can you imagine being the driving force behind constructing a border wall and then being the first person to cross it because God told you to go to the people on the other side? No? Yeah, Jonah couldn't either, so he ran away. Jonah, it seems, couldn't face the terrifying realization that he just encouraged a wall to be built and now God wanted him to cross it and go to Nineveh. And not just go to Nineveh, but go with a very specific message. Now, we don't hear the message until Jonah eventually decides to go in chapter 3 after the whole incident in the fish. In verse 4 of chapter 3, Jonah arrives in the middle of the city and he begins to announce the message that God has sent for him. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's Jonah 3 verse 4. Now, Jonah is a story that's written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew writer of this story, well, they do something quite clever here, because the Hebrew word that they use that we translate overthrown kind of literally means the idea to turn, or the turning of something. So it's used to mean overturned, as in destroyed, as Jonah clearly intends it here, but it also means to turn around or to transform. So the word has different ways to read it, depending on your perspective. So Jonah walks into the midst of the Nazis of his day and says, God's going to destroy you. But the Ninevites actually listen to Jonah and they believe him. And so what happens is they turn around, they get transformed, they change their ways, they adjust how they were behaving. It kind of makes the Hebrew of Jonah's short sermon quite beautiful. Because Jonah thinks he's saying, God's going to overthrow you. But what happens is the Ninevites hear it as an invitation to change their ways, to be turned around. And so, God doesn't destroy them. Nineveh was turned around, just not as Jonah wanted. Which makes Jonah really mad. The text says in chapter 4 and verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. And so Jonah prays and, and it's, well, it's called a prayer, but really, really it's a rant that, that Jonah gives. And it's recorded in the text. It reads like this. The text says, he, he prayed to the Lord. And this is, these are his words. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, this is a fascinating moment because Jonah, what he does is he actually quotes a piece of the Jewish Torah from Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, which is about God's character and qualities. But Jonah does it with this sort of tone of, like, I knew it. 
Like, I knew that I would hike all my way into the heart of the enemies that I've spent the last however long trying to protect us from. And no sooner have I done that, God, than, than you haven't carried through with what I wanted you to do. And here now, finally, in the final chapter of the book, we figure out why Jonah is mad. He's mad because of grace. This is the real reason he ran away. Because even when it sounds like God is mad, he'll still be graceful. It's who he is. Slow to anger, gracious, and compassionate. In his book, Sympathy for Jonah, David Bloor says, says it like this. He says, the grace of God is awful to us because the proper response to evil is to fear it and desire its destruction, not to love it and desire its redemption. And so Jonah finds himself in the tension that grace commonly creates, the sort of gap or space between who we are and who God is. And in this space, we see Jonah's anger. Maybe we see something. Well, maybe we actually see who John, Jonah really is. Because Jonah doesn't actually want God to be gracious to these people. And I kind of want to pause for a moment and ask you, well, I want to ask you this. Who are your Assyrians? Like, who do you want to keep out and not see encounter God's grace? Who does your anger burn against? Who could you not show grace to? Like, it, it won't be Assyrians, but is it Syrians or other immigrants? Or is it indigenous people? Is it the unemployed or Muslims, the LGBT community, Black Lives Matter protesters? Is it the federal government? <laughs> Is it the provincial government? Is it your neighbor's government? Or maybe it's a specific person. When you find someone that you don't think deserves what they've got and you are mad about it, you're probably not far from finding your own personal Assyrians. But Jonah is mad, so enraged that he wants to die. To which, to which God asks the, the mic drop question. It's a rough question. It's a painful question. It's the sort of question, God asks the sort of question that your therapist asks you, and you want to climb out of the room by any means possible to avoid asking it. Like God says to Jonah in Jonah uh, chapter 4 and verse 4, and this is what God says. He said, is it right for you to be angry? <laughs> like, Ouch. Like, that hurts. Like, why don't you stare in the mirror the next time you feel the rage coming and ask yourself that question. Is it right that I'm angry? Like, a little bit more Hebrew for you here. Uh, the word anger is, is literally the word burn. So, so, God, so God literally says to Jonah, is it good for you to be on fire? Like, like, what a cool image of what anger actually does. It's like, come on, Jonah, can't you see what's happening here? You're burning up and only damaging yourself. Like, is it right for you to be angry? 
So Jonah, anyway, he, he storms off in a rage. And a little bit of a context moment here. Be- because of Jonah and the whale, uh, if you've grown up like hearing that story or you've encountered that story of time, we kind of imagine Nineveh as, as like, a, like a coastal city, uh, you know, like right there by the, by the sea. So therefore the kind of fish spits Jonah up and he, and he wanders off into the city. But, but Nineveh, which is modern day Mosul, is separated from the sea. And you can literally you know, jump onto Google Maps and you can see where Mosul, Iraq is. But it's separated from the sea that Jonah was in by something in the region of probably close to a thousand kilometers of desert. So Jonah has had to hike it there. Like imagine hiking a thousand kilometers to tell a group of people something from God and you really don't like those people. But now he sat outside like apocalypse, well, you know, beyond angry. Let's just, let's just say that. And he sat in the desert sun watching to see what happens in the city. And then in verse four and in verse six of chapter four, it tells us that God makes a plant grow up to protect him and ease his discomfort. But again, the Hebrew writer plays clever with words. This time, the writer uses the same words that that mean the plant is given to ease Jonah's discomfort. But these words can also be translated to cover his evil. And Hebrew does this quite a lot, that words have kind of multiplicity of of meanings. So we read it on one way to say the plant was to cover uh, over him from the sun to ease his discomfort, but it also kind of means it's there to cover his evil. It's actually the same word, evil, that is used to describe the Ninevites as evil in chapter one. Now this, I think, is a fascinating insight into God's grace in the midst of our anger. Nineveh was an evil city and God gave them a way out. Jonah has lost the plot with rage, but God's grace is still towards him because that's what grace does. It covers us, it protects us, sometimes from ourselves. Like Jonah's trying to kill himself in the desert and there's God. He's keeping him alive. But then, but then God does something that, to be honest, it seems a little bit mean. Well, it definitely seems that way. God, well, he lets the plant get eaten and die. And, and the inside of Jonah's head starts to look at us like a scene from that Disney movie, Inside Out, when, when anger takes control. Like, like Jonah is just has lost it by this point because God's now kind of given him this plant and then the plant's now dead. So so God returns to Jonah with a second modified question in chapter four and verse nine. He now says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? (laughs) And you kind of start to get the sense that, that Jonah's involved in an object lesson here. To which Jonah replies, it is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So track with this for a moment. Jonah rages because a plant dies. And also because God was gracious to Nineveh. Or another way to see it, Jonah was more angry at the death of his plant than the possible deaths of 120,000 people in a city. And there's anger in stark reality. Because anger isn't focused. It's often wild and irrational and unreasonable. Anger allows Jonah to choose his issues and ignore what's actually happening around him. 
Like essentially we're talking about Jonah's self-awareness. He's become disconnected from reality, from fairness, from the ability to see things clearly. Daniel Goleman defines self-awareness as knowing one's internal states, preference, resources, and intuitions, which is a way of saying, do you actually know what's going on inside your head? Are you aware of what's influencing you to think particular ways or hold particular views? Like in our current moment of history, we're all exposed to ideas on a pretty regular basis. Thousands of articles, opinions, and comments scroll past our phone screens every hour of every day. For some of us, they're the first and last things that we see on any given day. But which ones stick with us and why? Why do particular opinions capture us more than others? Is it because they're good or is it because they align with what we think, so we just think they're good? Like as our world gets angrier and angrier, we are increasingly exposed to angry ideas that, that might connect with us if we're not aware of how we're being influenced. If we're not self-aware and able to manage our feelings, we unintentionally make decisions from our hurt, our biases, and our anger. Like Jonah's anger is being governed and fed by his perspective on his local context. But are we any different? Like how much of our rage is coming from something we saw in the news or on Facebook or we heard at work? Does our anger reflect the standards we want to live by? Like I want to ask myself whether my standards reflect Jesus. Like are they cross-shaped? Or are they Jonah-shaped? So the question, where is your anger coming from? Is it from you, your values, your principles, your sense of right, your justice, or what the Bible calls holiness? Or is your anger sourced from the news or your neighbor, perhaps your pastor, your colleague, your social media, your entitlement, your privilege? Is it really what you want to be like? So here's a challenge for you. It's a sort of a, a Marie Kondo for your rage. Why don't you audit your influences? Like what are the sources and places that you are being formed by? And perhaps here are some questions that you might want to ask. Like number one, what type of influences am I being exposed to? Number two, where are those influences sourcing their ideas and opinions? Thirdly, you might want to ask, does the evidence defend the ideas that I'm exposed to? Fourthly, how should I interpret the evidence in a fair and balanced way? There's a lot of evidence out there at the moment and a lot of interpretation happening, but I'm not sure it's fair and balanced. And then, then I might want to ask, what do I presently not know that I need to know before I form my opinion? Right, let me stop jumping to the gun on the basis of one argument that I've seen. And then finally, and here's a question, how am I learning and growing so that I might be more self-aware and able to navigate my own biases and tendencies? Like, it's amazing how often our rage can be assuaged by a change of perspective, hearing things from a different side, or just simply taking the time to listen a little bit more. All of Jonah's rage is coming because he misunderstands 
God's grace. But here's the thing. Rage, anger, they require passion. And passion isn't always very discerning. But our angers are increased the more that we engage with them. So it doesn't matter whether it's true or false. The more that you expose yourself to the stuff that makes your blood boil, well, the more your blood will boil, the more your rage will increase. Like Jonah's sitting in the desert and he's literally watching Nineveh uh, and he's watching the fact that it's not being destroyed. And this is just making him angrier and angrier. So as the great German theologian Karl Barth recommended, like, why don't you deprive your rage of the passion that it sustains it? Like, stop reading those particular posts. Unfollow the people that make you mad. And, you know, the difficult bit of that last one might be realizing that the stuff that makes you mad is actually the stuff that you agree with. But what if we remembered what St. Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 8 of that letter? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, the encouragement to deprive your anger of its passion is at the same time a push in the direction of grace. Like, don't fill your stream, your feed, your channel with the stuff that drives you to rage. Because do you know what? It's just going to make you mad. It won't fix anything. And in the place of rage at the transgressions of others, why don't you offer goodness and grace? And this isn't an encouragement to sort of check out and live in a bubble and pretend that everything's okay, but rather it's a call to think about what it is that's making you mad and ask you to stop feeding that. Like grace calls us to recognize something that Jonah had forgotten in his anger, that all of us are a mess and need the humility to realize that we all need grace. But Jonah forgot this. Perhaps he never knew it. And so he said, I'm so angry that I wish I was dead. And God offers him a response to this statement. It's a statement that reminds us of grace and how we all fall short of what we aim for. It's a statement God forms as a question in Jonah 4 and verse 10. It says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And now here's the thing. That is the end of the book. The book of Jonah ends with a question unanswered from God. And Jonah, Jonah was mad. Like he never wanted grace. He wanted to see Nineveh burn. And we never find out what happened to him. He's angry at the start. He's angry in the middle. And he's angry at the end. Here's a terrible idea. What if that's exactly how this story is supposed to go? Like, we read this story, and we know why Jonah's wrong. Like, we sit where we are, and we easily spot the problem. Like, Jonah lets his anger rule, and he doesn't show grace. 
This is a story of rage. You have raging seas. You have sailors perceiving a, a raging God, and you have raging Jonah. In fact, the only people not accused of rage are the bad guys, the, the, the Assyrians that live in Nineveh. And ironically, the bad guys change their ways, and Jonah, well, he doesn't. And that's the shocking part of this book. Like, there's no neat wrap-up. We don't ever see Jonah get it and become a, a prophet of grace. Like, for all we know, he lives his life out angry at God because of this one moment in his life. Like, you know, maybe Jonah became like that guy, you know, who everyone in the bar says, like, don't mention Nineveh to him because he will just go off. Because anger, irrational anger, well, that can shape your whole life. So what if the story doesn't end? Because this type of story never ends. Because this is our story. Like we might spot that Jonah was wrong and God was right, but are we any different? Like, are we in a rush to show grace to our enemies or to those who we disagree with or to those that we're angry at? Are we hurrying to hike into the middle of our enemies and show them God's grace? Do our nationalist, or political, racial, religious, or social views get in the way of grace or what God calls us to do? Do we know where our anger is coming from? One of my favorite prayers on this subject comes from Stanley Harvass, in which he brings his insight and his humor together to offer us this prayer that I want to leave you with today. The prayer is titled, A Prayer for Our Enemies as We Are All Learning How to Hate. It goes like this. Forgiving Lord, I do not want my enemies forgiven. I want you to kill them, as sometimes prays the psalmist. Actually, I would prefer to pray that you punish them rather than kill them, since I would like to watch them suffer. Also, I fear losing my enemies, since my hates are more precious to me than my loves. If I lost my hates, my enemies, how would I know who I am? Yet you have bent us towards reconciliation, that we may be able to pass one another Christ's peace. It is a terrible thing to ask of us. I'm sure I cannot do it, but you are a wily God, able to accomplish miracles. So may we be struck alive with the miracle of your grace, even to being reconciled with ourselves. Amen. Grace and peace to you, my friends.